told the world that the eagle had landed had famously dedicated a giant leap for mankind a few days later on apollo 11's long trip home from the sea of tranquility 50 years ago neil armstrong spoke directly to some of your neighbors from a command module pointed toward a splashdown in the pacific ocean neil armstrong first properly acknowledged the giants of science who have preceded this effort next the first man on the moon who had watched the monumental effort unfold among the palms and mangroves of East Central Florida, who had witnessed the widest variety of goal-oriented tasks the world had ever known, thanked the workers. From ditch diggers to engineers, more than 400,000 in all. We'd like to give a special thanks to all those Americans who built those spacecraft who did the construction, the design, the test, and put their their heart and all their abilities in, into those crafts. To those people, tonight we give a special thank you. Some 3,000 of those workers were in Daytona Beach working for General Electric. Hundreds of others from this area commuted south daily to Merritt Island and Cape Canaveral, working on the blossoming space center and launch pads. Many others worked and lived down there and eventually ended up in Volusia and Flagler counties. This 50th anniversary celebration of man's first landing on the moon, the culmination of the Apollo program, has given those long ago workers a chance to reflect on their roles in Neil Armstrong's giant leap a leap made possible by millions upon millions of small steps before it. Says Ormond Beach's Marvin Wonder, it's a thrill, really, just to have been a part of it. Marvin Wonder was one of hundreds who represented Daytona Beach's Local 295 of the Plumbers and Pipefitters Union at NASA and at Cape Canaveral. It's hard to fathom in today's political and bureaucratic climates, but things moved rapidly after President John Kennedy's 1961 directive to put a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth by decade's end. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. The United States, Kennedy insisted, must catch up with the Soviets and pull ahead in the space race, and the moon would become the next finish line. Many of the country's major industrial giants were tasked with the, all the facets of the job. Grumman, North American Aviation, Bendix, General Motors, and on and on. Among them was General Electric, a New York State-based conglomerate with roots tracing back to the 1890s and Thomas Edison. The headquarters for GE's Apollo Systems Department needed to be close to NASA, and in 1962, Daytona Beach became GE's Apollo-era home, with 500 workers originally sent here, and by 1966, nearly 2,500 more. It started in a building that's now a shopping center anchored by Caraba's Italian Grill on International Speedway Boulevard. It soon grew to be a seven-building campus where one Daytona now sits. Among the first wave of GE workers to arrive in 1962 was a future mayor of Daytona Beach, Larry Kelly, 
who was 27 with a young family and more than happy to leave Binghamton, New York. But before long, he realized just how seriously everyone's taking the space race. I worked my ass off, says Kelly, who was among the local GE engineers building test equipment for the ACE system. They wanted it done quickly and it had to be perfect. NASA not only put quality in what they were sending up to space, but they put quality in what we had on the ground. It was long, long hours, 12 hour days. As the Apollo program leapt closer and closer to its 1969 crowning achievement, Jim Codis joined GE and was assigned to its Kennedy Space Center operations. Now 73, in 1968, he was a fresh graduate of the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology, where he majored in electrical engineering. Uh, I was part of the GE uh, checkout equipment, and what we did was we basically checked out the command module, the lunar module, and the service module while they were being prepped for launch and right up to the time of launch from uh, Cape Canaveral. And I helped with the equipment, making sure that the test equipment was running right and uh, operating. By 1969, CODIS would be reassigned to GE's Daytona Beach complex, but during his year at NASA's Ground Zero, he was fully aware that something very big was going on all around him. Because uh, you feel like you're responsible for getting these people launched safely and back again safely. And your little part may not seem like much, but uh, you feel like if you didn't do it right, it's going to be a problem for somebody, and uh, you don't want to be that problem. Bill Rutherford, now 79 and living in Deltona, was an electrical instrumentation technician for the Bendix Corporation. He commuted 52 miles daily from his Winter Park home to the Space Center between 1968 and 75. He worked at NASA's Manned Spacecraft Operations Building in the altitude chamber. He worked specifically on the water deluge system, and like others, he worked a lot. I was hired on February 12 or something like that, he says. We didn't have a day off until Thanksgiving. Once you got one spacecraft out of the chamber, they'd put another one right behind it. Before there was Broadway, someone had to build the theaters. Before there was Apollo, someone had to build the Space Center. Our local had 200 members, but I'd say we had 2,000 travelers working through our local that were working down there, says Dow Graham, who's now 81 and lives in Port Orange. Local 296 of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers practically had a conveyor belt of electricians commuting to Merritt Island and Cape Canaveral before and during the Apollo years. They weren't alone. Carpenters, masons, lathers, painters, practically all of the trades made the daily commute. Daytona Beach's pipefitters and plumbers, Local 295, was a bustling place. At the peak during the Apollo program, says Marvin Wonder, we probably had just pipe fitters, maybe 700 working out of this local. A contractor would call the local and say, I need 20 men, and it had to be done right now. For a couple of years when I was down there, they kept two crews of men just on standby. Everything had to be done right away. You could be sitting there twiddling your thumbs for two weeks, then all of a sudden you're busting your butt 12 hours a day. For many, that eventually grew tiresome, and not just physically. A lot of jobs work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, says Wonder. Some of them had two 12-hour shifts, seven days a week. I kind of drew the line a little bit because it dawned on me. My children were getting ready to start school, and we were like strangers. I'm up at 4.30, 5 in the morning, and I don't get home until late. They're in bed when I leave, in bed when I get home. Many of the tradesmen in those days lived a modern cowboy's lifestyle. Some of them were far from home, here just for the work. And like the ranch hands of yore, they liked to blow off steam at quitting time. 
says Dal Graham. Coming home, the first stop after we got through the gate was a little package store. That was the first beer stop. Then at Hallover, they had a package store. I remember riding with a bunch of old linemen. We stopped and they got a bottle of whiskey. They opened it and threw the cap out of the car window. I said, what are you doing? The guy says, we don't put the cap back on our bottles of whiskey. It was a different place and time. As the launch date for Apollo 11 approached, Jim Cotus insists he had little anxiety. His engineer's philosophy won out, says Cotus. By Apollo 11, you think it's all going to happen as planned. Apollo 8 had gone around the moon. Apollo 9 had tested the lunar module. Apollo 10, they went to the moon, got into the lunar module, got close to the surface but didn't land. Just tested all the sequences. So by the time you get to Apollo 11, you're convinced everything is going to work because it's been working fine. Larry Kelly, who was at GE's Daytona Beach plant, was a bit more nervous. Says Kelly, you're thinking, you've done a lot of space shots, but this is it, baby. This is it. You have a child due to be born. You're waiting on him to be born, and then he's born. It's part of you. Part of you. You really feel good about it. Marvin wondered, the pipe fitter, takes a bigger view. You just knew that this is history, he said. It's about like Columbus sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. Marvin Wonder also marveled and still does at the logistical miracle of it all. Says Marvin, there were people working on this all over the United States, putting pieces together and assembling the stuff, and it all came down here and got put in. To coordinate all that, just a monstrous task. Minus 10, 9, 8, we have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, liftoff! On the three-day return trip to Earth, Armstrong spoke again to a worldwide audience using network audio capabilities that were revolutionary for the time as he thanked everyone who put their hearts and abilities into the success of that mission his words were clear and precise so were the words of command module pilot michael collins who might have summed up the effort just as well if not better than his historic cohort we have always had confidence that all this equipment will work and work properly and we continue to have confidence that it will do so for the remainder of the flight all this is possible only through the blood, sweat, and tears of a number of people. All you see is the three of us, but beneath the surface are thousands and thousands of others. To all those, I would like to say thank you very much.